It's Sex and Sarah Rose. I'm Sarah Rose, and really quick before we get into this episode, I know you may have found my podcast because you were looking for some interesting information about sex to listen to, but what you may not know is that I actually work with a lot of men to help them tap into their inner badass, have the sexual confidence that they've always desired to have, and to know once and for all that she isn't faking it. I have two distinct programs to help men. The first is for men who are ready to take the first step towards igniting their powerful sexual energy and getting better in bed. It's called Sex Stallion Training and it's an online program for you to do on your own time in the privacy of your home without a partner. This is for men that are single, in a relationship, or dating people. The second is called Man on Fire, which is the only sex university just for men. This six month program is designed to help you become the ultimate sexual master. For six whole months, you train with me in live online sessions, and I will train you to be the best lover that she has ever had. So if you want the sex secrets that every woman wish you knew, and you wish that every woman had told you, this is where they are finally revealed. Check out more info at tantricactivation.com or just check out the show notes in the podcast app you're listening to this from now, and there will be links there for you. Thanks and enjoy the show. It's Sex and Sarah Rose, and today we are talking about the myth of sex addiction with David Lay. And I'm so excited that David's here with me today. David is a PhD. He's a clinical psychologist, certified sex therapist. Uh, he practices in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's earned his bachelor degree in philosophy from Ole Miss and his master's and doctoral degrees in clinical psychology from the University of New Mexico. Dr. Lay is licensed in New Mexico and North Carolina and has provided clinical and consultative services in numerous other states. He's the executive director of New Mexico Solutions, a large outpatient mental health and substance abuse program in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's the author of numerous publications about sexuality, including his books, Insatiable Wives, The Myth of Sex Addiction, and Ethical Porn for Dicks. He's also a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under Tessa with Gracie Barra, Gracie Baja. Did I say uh, Tessa? Is that right? It's a uh, Tusa. It stands for uh, teeth because when he was a kid, he had big buck teeth. Oh, all right. So I am not familiar with that. Gracie. Is he, is he a Gracie? Uh, no, he's uh, Roberto Alencar. He, he got his black belt under um, you know, Carlos Gracie Jr. Okay, um, cool. Yeah. So I, uh, I first found David uh, <laughs> through a, a program that I was doing, continuing education. And not only was I like, this dude is fucking brilliant, and I totally love everything he's saying. He's a black belt in jujitsu. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for being here. Oh, I'm happy to. It's a, it's fun. I love meeting people whose lives, you know, kind of crisscross with mine in interesting ways. You know, the intersection between, you know, kind of sex therapy and jujitsu is interesting. And surprisingly, you know, I have found that it happens more than you would expect. 
Ah, interesting. I, I would be curious to, to hear who else you know that's uh, doing both because, you know, there's not a whole lot of us that do jujitsu and there's not a whole lot of us that work in, you know, the world of um, sexual health and, you know, just kind of the world of empowering people sexually through therapy or coaching or whatever it may be. But yeah, I'm really glad to have you. I talk with a lot of sex educators, a lot of sex coaches, but therapy is definitely a different take on going about all of this. And so I'm really happy to you know hear more about your thoughts, your philosophy, how you work with men. It's really powerful what you're doing in the world. And I'm really grateful for you. I definitely look at you as like a mentor, somebody that I learn from and, you know, take, can take what your, your research, your, what you're doing in the world and, you know, help guys that I work with through that research. So thank you for doing it. Well, thanks. That means a lot. I mean, I, um, I didn't really set out, uh, to do, you know, some of this stuff kind of intentionally. I, um, I was trained very traditionally in very traditional mental health as a psychologist, and most of my work, most of my career has been working with, you know, kind of traditional mental health stuff. But I used to work with sex offenders and, and working with people that, you know, had, had committed sexual crimes and violated the rights of others. Over time, I realized that, unfortunately, there are just a lot of people in therapy, in uh, mental health who have very, very conservative attitudes about sex uh, sex in general. And there's an l- awful lot of ignorance around sexuality. And so there's, the, you know, the, there are lots of people who, if you are into any kind of sex or more sex than they are, they assume there's something wrong with you. And, uh, you know, Kinsey, the famous sex researcher, he said it best, that the definition of a nymphomaniac or a sex addict today is anybody who has more sex than the therapist. If, you know, if your patients are getting laid more than you, then clearly there's something wrong with you, not with them, not you, I tell therapists. But that subjective kind of judgment is a problem. And what we're learning today is that you know, sexuality is, is very, very broad and that many of the things that we thought were unhealthy it turns out are healthy and very common. We thought they were unhealthy because people keep it secret, which means that most of the issues that we can relate to, to sexual unhealth or, or sexual problems are really driven more by shame and, and fear of stigma, which uh, as, we, as we start breaking those things down, we see people getting better. And that's where, that's where I think people like you really pay, play a really significant role, Sarah, because as you are out there being an empowered person, as you are out there you know, being sexually confident, accepting your sexuality, modeling to other people how they can be an erotic person with sexual integrity, who is, who is incorporated that, into your life in a thoughtful, mindful, responsible way, it gives other people the opportunity to do the same thing and to start accepting themselves. And that's incredibly healthy. It's really, really positive. And it's the answer to people who are afraid of their sexuality. Rather than trying to suppress it and make it go away, we can be healthier 
by accepting our sexuality and figuring out how to make it a part of ourselves rather than trying to stuff it or cut it out or hide it. How much do you think of the Me Too movement comes from the sexual repression that we've had for so many thousands of years? Oh, God, that's a, boy, that's a complicated, loaded question. <laughs> right um, off the bat, I know you're going to yeah, that, though. <laughs> the, you know, I, I, I think it's, I think that there's so much at play. I mean, I think that there is so, there are so many things moving right now, so many dynamics that are changing. I think that, you know, the ability now for women and anybody who has been sexually assaulted or sexually pressured to be able to, you know, call out that bad behavior and stand up for themselves, I think is absolutely critical. I think that, you know, there are a lot of fields where, you know, there are individuals who have been acting in predatory ways and taking advantage of their power for a long, long time. At the same time, though, I think that I, I really struggle with kind of what I refer to as kind of the victim culture that is sometimes being celebrated right now where people gain power or identity or influence by identifying themselves as having been taken advantage of or being a victim i because i i as a psychologist i, I don't think it's healthy to really fix ourselves or to celebrate the identity of victim we are a lot more than that and and I think that sometimes some of the some of the Me Too, you know, kind of movement and such, I don't, I don't think it acknowledged that sometimes we make decisions that we regret later, and we can learn from that bad decision, but calling it an assault and putting all the responsibility on, on, on that other person, I think that's complicated and it's a little more simplistic than I, wanna, than, than I as, a, as a therapist can really jump on board with. Yeah, I recently read an article about Me Too in the New York Times and it was talking about how our justice system has been you know, based on innocent until proven guilty. And yet with Me Too, somehow that has shifted where it's like now somebody can say that they were uh, assaulted and, you know, the other person's reputation can be ruined, um, you know, maybe not necessarily like in the court of law, but there's, and somehow the, dy the dynamic has shifted there where people aren't necessarily innocent until proven guilty anymore in this particular area of society. Have you seen that? Yeah, uh, I, I think that, you know, and, and, and I'm not an attorney and I don't play one on TV, but I think that, you know, what I want to acknowledge is that sex is messy. Sex is very, very complicated. Um, it's not, it's not simple. And, you know, I, I sexuality is is the most complex multiply influenced overdetermined you know human behavior that exists and there's so much of our lives 
our 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 uh, communications, our behaviors that uh, you know are influenced by and influence sexuality. That we need to we need to start looking at it in a much more sophisticated, rich, contextual way. And that I think is the you know as a therapist, as a psychologist, that's that's the thing that when I look at all of these situations. I and, and as I work with patients around a history of you know being sexual assaulted or engaging in sexual assault, I think it's really important that we we look at these as number one humans who are flawed and make mistakes uh, on all sides of it, and B that we need to start separating sex from everything else. Um, one of the things that I, I struggle with is that right now we. You know, we we view people who engage in marital infidelity, for instance, or you know, unfaithful sexuality behaviors. We we view that as like once you cheat, that's all you are, and you are completely immoral, and that that has become this kind of absolute standard for ethics and morality. But it's much more complicated than that, and we we can't separate you know, sexuality from the entirety of who a person is. But unfortunately, in a lot of these social dialogues, we, we are politicizing them. You know, Me Too has politicized sexual assault such that we have difficulty now really talking about what's, at, what's going on in there. Because when we politicize them, we want to make it simple. We want to make it black and white. We want to make it good or bad. And sexuality and people are more complicated than that. I want to have complicated conversations. I want to have rich, nuanced, sophisticated conversations where we recognize that a good person can, can do a bad thing and a bad person can do a good thing. And, and, and we need to evaluate all of that together. Have you noticed men becoming more shut down sexually due to all of this? Yeah, I, I certainly have. I mean, I've seen, I've seen men who come to me who are, you know, concerned about, you know, engaging in sex with people or flirting with people because they are worried that it is going to result in an accusation of harassment or be misinterpreted, result in assault. I see... You know, I, I see men sometimes for good reasons and sometimes for bad, looking back at um, their history of sexual behaviors and questioning whether they were appropriate or not. And I think that guys need to be asking those questions. But I think the concern is when guys are feeling as though they can't talk to other people, particularly women, about these issues, because I think that, again, that's where we start breaking down. The goal here, I think the ideal, is to open up more conversations, not shut them down. And uh, sometimes I'm seeing, particularly with the fear of being misinterpreted, I'm seeing a lot of men choosing to be silent. And the fear is that what that does is it turns into it turns into shame. It turns into self-disgust. It turns into uh, a fear 
of sexuality. So for instance, you know, I was working with this case a little while back and it was a, a young guy in college who um, the thing that really, really turned him on was watching pornography and fantasizing about, you know, face fucking a girl and uh, until she had kind of tears pouring down her eyes and um, that, you know, basically kind of rough oral sex. And he felt really awful about it. He thought that having that desire or interest made him a bad person, made him a rapist, even though he had never engaged in sexual assault, never violated anybody's rights. But just having that sexual fantasy, he thought, made him a bad person. And so we got to talk about it. And like, well, look, there are lots of women who are really into that. And your job is to find one who is into it and not do that with somebody who is not into it. But that requires, you know, pretty sophisticated kind of communication and discussion for him to be able to say to a girl, hey, look, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really into this. What do you think? Would you be okay with that? And if she's not, then he says, well, okay. And, and maybe he moves on or maybe he finds another way to pursue that fantasy. But that requires acceptance. And in today's, you know, kind of fear-based kind of conversation around a lot of these issues, a lot of guys would get shut down and not even be able to have that conversation. And a lot of women, unfortunately, are afraid to admit that that's something they're into because then they're afraid that if they say they're into it, that a guy might take advantage of them and, and force them beyond their, their level of comfort. This is all really sophisticated. There's no easy answers. It's complicated. But the complicated stuff is actually the, the stuff I like. I mean, like, like in jujitsu, you know, I don't like simple stuff. I, wanna, I, wanna, I, I love a good scramble where, you know, we don't know who's going to – we don't know who's going to win here. We don't know what's going to happen. We, we don't know who's going to move right, wrong, this way, that. That's where it gets really exciting for me because it's really engaging and, and we, get to, we get to see some really sophisticated progress. And do you think it's with a, as a society we are capable of moving there or is it just a lost cause? I certainly think we're capable. I mean, I think we have moved really, really well in, in a lot of powerful ways. I mean, I think the frustrating thing is that this stuff doesn't move as quickly as we want it to. But, it, you know, I, I have good friends who, you know, were, um, you know, uh, uh, civil rights activists, you know, for decades. And, and, and they would say to me, look, David, you know, when we started talking about these issues, black people and white people couldn't even sit at the same, you know, counter in the restaurant together. And they said, yeah, it took 50 years, but we had an African-American president. You know, that, that is the level of huge change that our country went through. Is everything perfect? Absolutely not. And, and, and it felt like 50 years was a really long time. But in the grand scheme of things, 50 years was really, really quick for that kind of change to happen. So, you know, I look at, for instance, you know, I look at the Internet and, you know, the Internet, for good or for bad, better or worse, has probably contributed to 
greatest level of changes in sexuality um, of, of, of almost any technology in history where, you know, we now have access to information that we used to not be able to get. We now have access to sexual material that we used to not be able to get. You know, when I was a kid to, to get porn, you know, you had to go out in the woods or go dumpster diving. Now you just go online. And that's good and bad in some ways. I, I, I think we were better people when we had to walk uphill in snow both ways to get pornography. You know, kids have it so damn easy. But I think, though, that the really powerful thing about the Internet and sexuality is that now we can find out that we're not the only one right we're not we're not the only one that has this sexual interest you know that 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 kid that you know is turned on by the idea of face fucking or you know those 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 people out there who are turned on by being dominated or by group sex or by bisexuality or by homosexual behavior it used to be that you kept your mouth shut because you were sure you were the only one that had that interest but now the internet lets us find out that there are lots of people out there with those interests. And that breaks down some of that shame and stigma. And the thing is, you can't take that away. They can't close the internet. They can't, you know, a, 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 I, I know there are lots of people out there who would like to censor, you know, our ability to access that information. In the United Kingdom, you know, they tried to put in age verification for pornography. And I think pornography is a complicated issue. I think that pornography makes sex look easy when good sex is really complicated. But pornography is fantasy. It's not, it's not intended to be educational. And in the United Kingdom, one of the things that was interesting, actually, they, they wanted to restrict access specifically to rape pornography or violent pornography, because their idea was that access to that material increased risk of rape. Now, the research actually says it's the exact reverse, that access to pornography decreases rates of sexual violence and that it is actually women who access rough sex or violent sex pornography much more than men, and that it is likely that access to that material decreases risk of rape much more than it would increase. But, you know, the, the politicians, they don't want to hear that. But the United Kingdom, eventually, they had to give up on this attempt to censor or restrict access to material on the Internet because they just couldn't make it work. And it, because sexuality is this huge part of the Internet and it's part of our lives, and you can't just cut off that one little piece, put it in a box, and have everything be okay. Humans don't work that way. That, so as a result, I'm just circling back, I think, Sarah, that the progress we've made on these issues, we will look back and recognize that they are staggering. Between the, between the time of 2010 and 2015, our country went through, our society, went through the largest social shift that has ever been recorded in human history around values. In 2010, a majority of the United States believed that gay marriage was wrong and bad. Five years later, 2015, a majority of our country believed that gay marriage was right. And in 2015, the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, right? Well, that shift happened 
because over that five-year period, people around the world and on television and on social media and in our lives came out to each other about being gay, about being bisexual. And we stopped keeping these secrets. And all of a sudden, we found out that, oh, well, being gay, being bisexual, turns out it's not that big a deal. Turns out my neighbor is, turns out my sister is, turns out this, that, and the other thing. And it breaks down some of that judgment. That, that I think, is a really powerful model for what we're seeing moving forward that we are more and more learning to accept our own sexuality and the sexuality of others and not be so afraid of it. That, I think, is the thing that gives me the most hope for the future. Kids today, it's really interesting. I mean, you look at kids today and they're, you know, they're talking about gender fluidity and non-binary and, you know, half of People under 25 believe that monogamy is not really necessary for relationships. We've never had discussions like that before. And I think that whether you believe in monogamy or, or, or being the right thing or not, what we're seeing now is this tremendous shift in a greater acceptance of sexual diversity that there's not one right way to be sexual. And, and I accept that you might want to be sexual in a way that doesn't turn me on, but it doesn't make you a bad person or me either. I think that's really, really cool. And I think it's remarkably healthy. Yeah, absolutely. So in this pandemic with, you know, just this huge crisis that's going on, both health crisis and economic crisis, what are you noticing um, in how that is impacting people sexually right now? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a good question. It's a complicated one. A lot of people are, you know, experiencing actually a decreased kind of libido. A lot of people are finding that, you know, there's so much stress, there's so much frustration at being at home. You know, we've got our kids at home. We've got, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're isolated, we're quarantined, we're stressed out. And so a lot of people are finding that they, they're just not as interested in sex as they thought they would be. And a lot, however, at the same time, there's a, you know, a pretty significant increase in consumption of pornography. And pornography is a tool for masturbation. Whenever, when, whenever anybody talks about, you know, they're addicted to pornography or they talk about we want to restrict pornography or we think pornography is bad for people. What they're actually saying is we think masturbation to pornography is bad for people. We think we think we're addicted to masturbation to pornography because 90% of pornography use is accompanied by masturbation. And people watch pornography because it enhances their sexual arousal. It helps them kind of get out of their head, look at this fantasy and kind of turn off their brain for a little while the same way we turn off our brain when we watch television watching pornography is the same thing we turn off our worry and our anxiety and our fear and our brain for a little while while we watch this thing and turn and get turned on and masturbate and have an orgasm as well and 
we're seeing higher levels of pornography consumption, but, you know, with people trapped at home as they are using pornography and masturbation as a way to turn off and escape some of those fears and concerns and anxieties and stresses. You know, sometimes, you know, watching the news can just leave you so stressed and overwhelmed that you need to turn off your head getting turned on and having an orgasm is a really great way to do that that's part of how sexuality works what's interesting i mean you know the um both pornhub and x hamster two of the pretty big porn tube you know kind of sites they offered premium memberships to folks that are trapped at home during covid Ideally, and they were basically saying, look, you know, it's really not safe for you to go out and find somebody to have sex with. So we're going to make it easier for you, you know, watch porn and, and, and masturbate. And we're going to we're going to be part of the solution. We're going to be part of, you know, help people making healthy decisions. I thought that was really cool because, you know, we many people demonize pornography makers and, and pornography companies. And here was an example of porn companies wanting to help people do the right thing and be good people in this crisis. I thought it was really neat. And, and we're, I, you know, there was an article that a friend of mine published the other day and said, look, during this COVID crisis, it's the right time to talk to your partner about porn. And, 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 and I completely agree. I mean, I've done these uh, talks for some of the major porn companies, helping men and women learn how to talk with their partners about pornography. You know, my, my last book, Ethical Porn for Dicks, it was, that's what it was all about. It was about how to be ethical and responsible as you watch pornography, how to talk to your partner about it and what it means to you, as opposed to being afraid of it, keeping it hidden, treating it as something to be very shamed about. Again, I'm all about breaking down shame because ultimately it's the shame around sexuality that, that hurts people and harms them. Again, I, I, Sarah, I think uh, you know, as, as I look at the work that you do, I think that that is one of the places that people like you have the greatest impact because you help men and women stop being ashamed of their sexuality and accept it. Hopefully we come out of all of this, uh, these social changes and this COVID crisis with a greater level of self-acceptance of our sexuality. So in regards to porn, do you, I have a couple of questions here. Do you find that, um, you know, there are a lot of people that say, and I have not seen the studies on it, but they say that by watching porn, you continue to have to increase the type of porn you're watching, the sensation of the porn, um, you become less sensitized, it's harder to be turned on by your partner, by, you know, another human mm -hmm. by watching porn. What do you see as the reality in, in that conversation? Well, so, you know, and, and this is stuff that I really explore in, in my book, The Myth of Sex Addiction, that, you know, what you just described is basically taking the tolerance idea of alcohol, for instance, alcohol and drugs, and applying it to sex. You know, when I was a kid, if I drank a, you know, one or two beers, I would get pretty drunk. But now I'm much older. I've had a lot to drink over my life. I've developed greater tolerance. And so one or two beers just doesn't really do anything. 
the idea of sex addiction and porn addiction said, well, look, maybe sex and porn are like drugs and alcohol. And so they said, you know, maybe, you know, when we start watching pornography, you know, we, we, you know, when I was a kid, I could look at the JCPenney catalog and get turned on and masturbate looking at the lingerie section. I just read in the paper today that JCPenney is now going bankrupt. The world is changing. But if I looked at the JCPenney lingerie section today, it wouldn't get, I wouldn't get turned on. I might think, oh, that, that's nice. I might want to buy that you know, for my wife, but I'm not going to get so turned on that I, that I have to jerk off. Is that because of tolerance and the sex that I've had and the, and the pornography that I've seen over my life? Or is it simply a result of sexual development and that my body and my sexuality have changed over life the way they're supposed to? That's where things get really, really complicated when we start applying this kind of tolerance model to sexuality because there's no good distinction in there from normal sexual development. You know, when I was young and I first started having sex, gosh, you know, I will admit it was difficult for me to last more than a couple of minutes because I was so excited and it was so amazing and I was just so happy to be there. But now I can last a lot longer. Is that because I developed a tolerance to sexuality or is that because of sexual development? I think it's a very, very important distinction. What we find actually, and, and when we look at what the data actually says, we find that most people watch the same kind of pornography over and over again. They may watch different, different clips, but there's a, a nice book um, called uh, A Billion Wicked Thoughts, and these researchers analyzed a billion Google searches. And a majority of them are about pornography and sex. And they found that most people search for the same kind of porn over and over and over again. People are actually really remarkably boring in the sex that they fantasize about. They find one kind of fantasy, one kind of you know, pornography, and, and that's what they look for. It's their go-to because they know it works for them. Pornography doesn't appear to be a slippery slope where you, you, know, you start looking at KY, uh, well, you, you start looking at Playboy, and that slippery slope that's coded in KY ends up that at the end, you end up fucking sheep. Our sexuality doesn't appear to develop in that kind of catastrophic kind of way. What we do see is that there are guys, and this is mostly with males, that the more they watch pornography, the more difficult they, difficulty they have achieving orgasm with a partner. Now, there's, there's a claim online that watching too much pornography leads to erectile dysfunction, and there's absolutely no scientific evidence of that. Instead, what we find is that the guys who are reporting erectile issues and blaming it on pornography, they tend to be highly anxious guys without a lot of sexual experience. When we watch pornography, we can masturbate really easily. We don't have to worry about satisfying the internet. We don't have to worry about buying the internet dinner, hoping it'll have sex with us. Sex through pornography and masturbation is really easy. You can relax, but sex with a partner is more complicated. We have to worry about our partner, their experience. Are they going to have a nice time? And for an anxious person, that is complicated and gets in the way of developing an erection.
but they blame it on pornography when masturbation and sex are two very different behaviors with a lot of complicated differences that are really powerful to pay attention to. But what we find is that men who watch pornography, as I said, they do struggle with ejaculation, with achieving orgasm. But it's not because of the pornography. It's because they are teaching their penis to respond to a certain kind of level of stimulation. Dan Savage calls it the death grip. They're squeezing their penis too tightly as they masturbate. And then as they have sex with a partner, their vagina or mouth or anus can't replicate that level of tight sensation. So the answer is not the pornography, but it is to change how you masturbate. And so with those guys, you know, for instance, I teach them different ways to masturbate with a, with, with a, using just two fingers instead of their whole hand, using a fleshlight or a sleeve to change the sensation and to start teaching their body different ways to experience this sensation. What I like to talk about instead of Instead of talking about thing, you know, sexuality or pornography as addiction, I like to think about it as learning. What are we teaching our body? What are we teaching our sexuality as we engage in this behavior? And do we want to do things one way and only one way? I've known women who, you know, that they could only achieve orgasm in one very certain specific way and anything else just didn't get them there. Some of that is learning. Some of it's just from their body. But we don't blame them. You know, the, in the 70s when vibrators first came in, you know, vibrators actually appeared in the 1800s, but they became relatively popular and accepted in the 1970s and 80s. And at that time, there was a panic. And people were saying, oh, vibrators are addictive and women are going to learn to orgasm with their vibrators and they won't want, they won't want men anymore. We don't need penises. We just, want the, we just need this vibrator. Well, the vibrators didn't replace men, but they enhanced sexuality and sexual arousal for a lot of uh, couples out there. I think we can, we can approach pornography and all of this sexuality the same way by rather than being afraid and reactive to it, let's look at what it does. Let's look at what it teaches us. Let's look at what we can learn from it. And let's look at the positives and the negatives of it and how we can help people incorporate it into their lives in a healthy way. I think that you know, most of the dialogue right now about you know, pornography addiction, about sex addiction, it is a fear-based dialogue. It's just like abstinence-only sex education was a fear-based dialogue where they were saying to kids, look, be afraid of sex and be afraid you might get pregnant, be afraid you might get an STD, and hoping that the more we made kids afraid of sex, the more they would not do it. But it turns out it doesn't work that way. The research actually is pretty clear that abstinence-only sex education actually makes it more likely that when a kid, when kids have been through abstinence-only sex ed have sex, they don't use a condom. And so they're more likely to get pregnant if they've been through abstinence-only sex education because fear is not a good strategy to manage sexuality. Instead, you know, I like to look at like the Netherlands and Holland. They have lower 
pregnancy rates, STI rates, and sexual assault rates than the United States. But they start talking about sex in a healthy, accepting, non-fear-based way with adolescents and children at an earlier age, at an age-appropriate level. And they don't treat sex as though it is this something that there's this thing that we must be afraid of and suppress. Instead, they treat it as a part of human existence. And the more we can do that, the more the more we can give people the ability to make to make good decisions. You know, the, the this research came out um, a couple of years ago. It was called um, uh, "Oh God, I Can't Stop Thinking About Sex." And what they found was that. The more religious somebody was, the more the more uh, they had moral attitudes that were, uh, you know, condemning towards sex and masturbation. The more those people tried to make themselves stop thinking about sex and masturbation. And what happens when you try to make yourself stop thinking about something? You think about it even more, right? Yeah, definitely and, doesn't work. <laughs> and and so that's what they found was this paradoxical kind of effect and unfortunately i think that when we when we are telling people that you know they should be afraid of pornography they should be afraid of sex we're actually making them think about that thing more and giving it more importance um, we're treating it as something to be afraid of when sex and pornography we don't have to be afraid of it um, i think that the more we can accept and and, and understand it the healthier decisions we can make have any uh, studies been done yet on the effect of porn during adolescence and if that impacts young boys as far as kinks? Well, not really, kind of, yes. But, I mean, it, the thing is, it's not like you can do a study where you show underage kids porn because you would go to jail and be, you know, <laughs> incarcerated for the rest of your life if you tried to do that research. What we what we find is that most adolescents, you know, have seen porn, and most adolescent, you know, uh, uh, males especially. What we what we learn is that they are going to pornography to answer questions that they have about sex because they usually don't have a good avenue or resource to get those questions answered in other ways. We do see that you know young people are learning lessons in pornography that we might not necessarily want them to learn. So there's a, a, a lady who runs a website called Make Love Not Porn, and she says, look, you know, pornography doesn't show all of the negotiation. It doesn't show the tenderness. It doesn't show the connection that is required for good sex. Let's make videos that do show that. And that's what her website is about. And, and she said she was, you know, being with young men who wanted to have porn sex, and she didn't, she didn't really enjoy that. The, the problem is, though, there are, there are women out there who do like porn sex, and they want that kind of sex. And I think, again, there are all kinds of flavors and types and approaches to sex out there. We shouldn't be shaming other people for having a different kind of interest or approach to sex than we do. 
we just need to be able to negotiate it with dignity and respect for each other and, and focus on consent. Those are unfortunately the lessons that I think it missed. We, we are moving towards an approach to sex that focuses on sex education, that focuses on instead of teaching people what to do, what if we teach them how to do it in a healthy way? So instead, of, you know, that, like the, the guy that I mentioned, you know, who was, who was uh, you know, turned on by, you know, kind of rough oral sex with women. Telling him, dude, you shouldn't have that fantasy. It's not going to help anything. It's not going to make that fantasy go away. But instead, what if we taught him how to pursue or integrate that kind of sexual fantasy in his life in a healthy, ethical way? So instead of focusing on what you do, let's talk about how you do it. In other words, hey, that's not something you try with a girl on the first date unless you know she's into it, right? That, I think, is the, is the conversation that I want to have and that I want to have, want to be part of as, as we work with young people who are learning about sex from porn. We teach them the rest of the story. There's a, a researcher in, uh, uh, I think, Boston named Emily Rothman who has now published a curriculum called Porn Literacy where it is for young people and it is teaching them what porn is and isn't. It doesn't demonize pornography any more than we demonize superhero movies. But the thing is that when we watch superhero movies, we know it's fantasy. We know people can't fly and shoot laser beams out of their eyes. We wish we could. It'd be fucking fun. But when we watch pornography, because we don't know what real sex is, we can misunderstand that that fantasy is reality and and that i think is the is the place where we can fill the gap and the way we fill the gap is by having conversations with young people about what real healthy good sex is and we talk about the relationship the integrity the communication the consent that is necessary that's the same way we address the problems that we've identified out of the Me Too movement is we focus on how to have healthy sex rather than shaming people for having a kind of sex that we disagree with. Thank you so much for all of that. It's been, I always learn so much for, from you. I wish I could just like sit here an hour a week and just pick your brain and <laughs> so much. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Seriously. Like for me, this is super exciting. This is like, you know, being a kid going to Disneyland. I'm like, I get to interview David Lay. (laughs) (laughs) I was so excited when I got to meet you. When was that? Like last October? I think think so. Yeah. You you came out here to record that uh, Ken Karate thing. (laughs) Ken Karate. (laughs) Master Ken. Master Ken, my apologies. Um, oh, that was great. Yeah, um, I, I've enjoyed getting to know you as well. I, I, I thank you. You're doing great stuff. I mean, I, I really, I, I'm really excited to see people like you out there, you know, talking, leading the way, having these conversations. Um, it, it's, it's really, really cool. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. All right. So we always play a game on um, this podcast and it's called Let's Talk About Sex. Uh, My friend Erin Hickok developed it. It's her intimacy deck. 
and her company is called cardsforhumanity.com. You can always find that on Amazon. So is it all right if I ask you a couple of questions from this deck? Go for it. All right. Let me see. I'm going to see which one comes out. All right. Here we go. To me, receiving pleasure feels blank. You fill in the blank. Oh, you know, personally, one of the things I struggle with is feeling feeling selfish in that moment. I actually, I it's hard for me to like get a massage because receiving that pleasure feels selfish, and I I I want to turn around and okay, uh, now now we're done. Now I'm going to give you a massage so that I can you know equalize things. So you know, actually, it's been it's been one of the places where I've had to really develop as a person to allow myself to to receive and experience that kind of attention. Yeah, that's something that a lot of guys have. I hear that quite a bit. And actually in the uh, six-month group coaching program that I do, it's called Man on Fire. One of the things that guys bring up over and over is that they're finally able to receive pleasure. They're finally able to like really be in their own bliss during sex in a way that they never were before. So that's a very common thing that I hear um, with men. Guys, you know, and I, I talk about that a lot in therapy with guys that, you know, men, men are taught that our value is what we can do for people. You know, and if you don't contribute, if you don't do things for other people, then you're not worthwhile. And, and that's tough. That gets in the way of being able to accept yourself as a person as, you know, worthy of receiving pleasure and love and, and, and everything else. It, it definitely is one of the dynamics that I also have to help people work through often. Yeah, and just thinking back on lovers that I've had, ones that, you know, were were able to like really go into their own pleasure with me. It's been some of the most amazing sex ever. I mean, there's definitely been like the guys where I wasn't in pleasure and they were and that sucked. <laughs> you know? Like no no one wants that. But the ones were like we were both just really able to go into those amazing sensations. Uh, like that's just incredible. And from a female perspective, like it's really hot when the guy is super turned on and like really like really feeling his uh just all the sensations in his body and like really able to like sound and move and and breathe and like have just like this full bodied experience of sex so i definitely encourage guys uh you know from the female perspective of like it's really a turn on when you when you go there so don't hold back <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh so real quick let's do some bjj talk sure are you are you teaching at all uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, in the non-quarantine kind of world, I, uh, I mostly train and roll, but I teach uh, some kids with disabilities in jujitsu um, and mixed martial arts. I was born with only one hand, and, and I wish that I had had access to somebody like me when I was young to teach me about, you know, how to kind of accept my body, how to accept, um, but also how to adapt. And 
and now I get to do that. The thing I love about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is that, you know, everybody fits it on themselves. You know, John Jacques Machado said that. He, he said, you fit Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu on yourself. You make it work for you and your body, your, your approach, your strength, your speed. And, and so it is infinitely adaptive. Um, it is the perfect sport for me. And, and, and that's what I really enjoy is when I get to teach people, whether it's somebody I'm rolling with for the minute, you know, when you and I roll together, I love to teach them how to take something and make it work for themselves. Um, that's what's really exciting to me about jujitsu. Yeah, I love it. I miss it so much. And uh, oh, yeah. I've been looking at schools here in Phoenix, and there's actually uh, one of the schools. There's only one Machado school in Phoenix, and it's a Regan Machado school, and it's all no-gi. And I haven't done no-gi. If the, like, I got my, my fourth stripe as a white belt at the school that I was at in Austin on New Year's Eve. So, if we hadn't had this whole quarantine hit, I would have gotten my blue belt right now. Like I was definitely mm. on, on track uh, to get my blue belt in April. So Congrats. now, well, I guess because now like going from a school that was gi to only a school that's no gi. First of all, I'm changing schools, you know, changing professors. They're going to want to see where I'm at with all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to prove myself. Plus learning a new style of the game, you know, doing no gi instead of gi. I'm just like, oh my God, it's going to be another freaking year before I get my blue belt. <laughs> so that's a little bit frustrating. But at the same time, like I... I, I definitely recognize like that's more ego than anything, uh, you know, of like I just have the ego of like, you know, I want to, I want to have my blue belt and I want that like the people be like, yeah, you did it. Good job. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. but for me personally, I just love jujitsu. Like I just oh, yeah. fucking love being on the mat. And so that isn't going to change regardless of what belt color I am, you know? So I just mm -hmm. keep doing it cause I love it. <laughs> yeah. The, I, I miss it like crazy. I, I hate exercising and jujitsu is my main thing and, uh, and doing online stuff, you know, I'll watch videos and try and learn, but I'm just, I'm just thinking about the next time I get to roll. And, uh, and I do good. I do gi and no gi. Um, you know, I wrestled for, a long time before I got into jujitsu and, and I did just gi for about 10 years. And, and then I started picking up uh, no gi again as I started doing more kind of mixed martial arts training and stuff. And, and I just love it all. And I miss it like crazy. Um, I will say, you know, there's a, there's a good Gracie Baja kind of community in, um, in Tucson and Phoenix. Um, Enrique Villegas is a good friend of mine, a fellow professor who I used to train a lot with and he moved out there and started some good schools. You know, they do a lot of gi, um, you know, some no gi. That might be a place that you just, you know, you, you check it out and see, see what that, what that school feels like too. Um, okay. The thing I really loved about jujitsu is, you know, I can throw my gi in a bag and, you know, when I travel for a business, I just find a school and maybe it's part of my, you know, part of my school or not. But I show up and they're just happy to see me and I get to train with new people and learn new things. Uh, it's such a cool, welcoming, open kind of community that I've been, I've been happy everywhere I went. Um, it's really exciting to me.
Yeah, I love the community, and I think that's what I, I miss so much is, like, my my community in Austin is, like, that was home, you know, and, and now it's, like, all right, finding a new home, but same, I've had the same experience everywhere I've gone, no matter where I've been in the world, you walk into a BJJ school, and you, you know, it's, like, you train, you're welcome, yep. and, and really, exactly. like, you know, people, what I noticed was like, they just wanted to know, like, you know, are you, are you here to waste my time? Or are you like going to be a good training buddy? And, yeah. you know, like they respect the people that are going to keep showing up because, you know, a lot of people come in and they're just like, uh, you know, and then they're gone. And so, it can, mm-hmm. you know, it can be kind of hard when you're like, uh, you know, is this person going to waste my time? But if you're, it doesn't matter what level you are, like even as a white belt, you know, guys that I train with, like they knew I was there seriously because I was like I was there six days a week, and so they're like, yeah, like this this chick is legit, and so like they had no problem helping me out and you know with everything. So great, amazing people. Uh, yep. But yeah, well, hopefully I will see you um, before too long. If you're ever in Phoenix, let me know. I will probably be back in Albuquerque to see Master Ken again. Uh, you know, maybe sometime in the fall. So I will definitely see you then. Sounds great. I look forward to seeing you. So I'm going to put all of your your links in the show notes, um, but tell everyone where they can find you. Uh, You know, davidlayphd.com is the uh, easiest place to find me, but then I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. I think if you just search for, you know, uh, Dr. David Lay, you'll find me. And the last name is L-E-Y. And uh, and thanks. Hey, I've enjoyed it. Enjoy talking to you. All right, David. Thank you. Hey, it's Sarah again. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out the links in the show notes for everything we discussed in this episode. And you can also find out about how you can work with me. Until next time, lovers. Down tonight.